I'm recording this on the evening of Monday, November the 13th, 2023. Today, Britain's longest serving prisoner has been returned to jail. Today is the third time he's been sent to prison. The second time, in the 1970s, required an ingenious police trap. This is a story about a true monster, but it's really a story of how this man was caught. It's about an incredible policeman and a team of officers who showed guts, courage and innovation. What you'll hear in the next 15 minutes or so is unlike any other police story I know of. It's about an operation which required bravery, boldness, but was also a bit, well, frankly, bonkers. And I don't think any senior officer today would ever allow it. But it worked. This podcast makes references to sexual violence. Listener discretion is advised. This is a career-defining moment. You'll never not be talking about this case. It will always be with you. And it's because it was such an extraordinary uh, case. Not only the decoy operation for the females, but the male decoy work was, was pretty extraordinary. And then the very fact that he was caught, the fact that he was a serial offender was an extraordinary thing. It's January 1979. Chris Gould is a young constable with Avon and Somerset Police. In the city of Bristol in the southwest of England, a man's been attacking women for nearly two years now, seemingly at will. The senior commanders in the force are desperate and pressure is mounting as demonstrators take to the streets in candlelit vigils, campaigning at the police's inability to catch this man. Chris has had an idea. It seems outlandish, daring, certainly risky, very. An undercover operation unlike anything seen before in Britain. Covert work is nothing new in policing, but what Chris is suggesting is something on a whole new scale. And the types of officers needed must be specific. To do this job, they'll need the youngest, most inexperienced female officers. Many are even younger than Chris's, just teenagers. Decoys, honey traps, agent provocateurs. Soon, they will start deploying to try to lure this man, a man who has threatened to kill all of the women he's attacked. Get this right, and they'll take one of the country's most wanted men off the streets get it wrong, and the consequences are unthinkable. Where do men like Chris fit in? Well, this case has some unbelievable twists on the route to justice. So they go out, night after freezing night. These young officers are asking themselves this question. To what lengths would you go to ensure the safety of others? Would you put your own life on the line? My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes.
Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from people who were involved, victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For more than 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'll be making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. Now, I'm putting a lot of information about this case on my Substack page, images, maps, video clips and more. Just follow me at robertsmurphy.substack.com. You get lots of access if you subscribe for free, but you get everything if you become a paid member. It really would mean a lot if you could rate and review Behind the Crimes on Apple or Spotify, and we would love you to spread the word. Please share it. It doesn't cost a penny. This episode is called Agent Provocateur. Let's back up a couple of years to 1977. Chris Gould was 18 years old. He had an interest in martial arts and a reputation as a go-getter, equally important as we'll discover. He was on a two-year probation with Avon and Somerset Police in Bristol. Now, most probations are a mixture of learning and boredom. Just trying not to get kicked out? Youngsters just weren't trusted with bigger jobs, but Chris had already been noticed for his daring and ability for covert work. He made his name on a frankly bizarre and extremely grubby inquiry, investigating a grim criminal who was even younger than he was. I can only remember it being called the Magic Fingers Operation, which was um, in Bristol, and it was to do with a 12-year-old Clifton schoolboy who um, ended up in a brothel in um, Clifton somewhere and ended up with a weapon, firearm, and um, was robbing the brothel to get his money back after um, sexual favours. And um, that turned into quite a big operation in Bristol, and they uncovered numerous um, brothels across the city being run by um, a married couple. And I was involved in that. I I was sort of seconded off the uniform group onto that. As Chris was taking his first steps into the world of covert policing, elsewhere in the city, the attacks began. The first assault happened in the suburb of Clifton at two in the morning on July the 16th, 1977. A woman was walking home from a nightclub. She later told police she noticed she was followed by a man. She tried to hide in the garden of a house, but he caught her there and sexually assaulted her. The next attack was just three days later and about 100 yards away. The women were able to give a description of the man to police who made a photo fit image. It was quite distinctive. You know, it had that that moustache and it had the dark, reasonably shoulder length hair. It was, you know, it was it was it was a, a photo fit of its day. And and of course, they weren't brilliant, but they were a guide to um what we were looking for. And there were more assaults, in total seven of them over two years. The man became known as the Clifton Rapist. The bedsit area of Bristol around the Clifton Cotton area was uh, a target area, hotspot for these crimes. The offender was targeting lone females who invariably were likely to be students. These days, all of the attacks would be classed as rape. 
But in the 1970s, the law was different, and only one would be. The other six were written up as indecent assaults. Now, that phrase goes nowhere near describing the life-changing terror of what this man did to the survivors. He would appear in the night, grabbed each woman from behind. He put both his hands around their throats before threatening to kill them and subjecting the women to prolonged, violent attacks in gardens or alleyways. Avon and Somerset tried high-visibility campaigns and covert operations. They handed out leaflets at the university, made television appeals, all without success. In desperation, they told women not to go out alone in the city. On numerous occasions, I've, I've stopped with a colleague and actually given lone females lifts home because they haven't got the money to get a taxi, um, you know, because it was, they were scared. Um, they knew they were doing, doing something risky. For the majority, they would have been fine, but for others, it wasn't, it wasn't that sort of outcome. The Clifton Rapist seemed one step ahead. Some detectives believed he was, even in some way, connected with the police, as he always seemed to know when to vanish, for months, and when he could resume his attacks without being caught. In normal times, this kind of offender would be a rarity. But if you're thinking, I haven't heard of this man, well, it was always overshadowed by the murderer the newspapers called the Yorkshire Ripper, who was operating in Leeds and Bradford at exactly the same time. The gaze of the media was on the killer up north. But it also meant that the safety of women at night was front and centre in the national consciousness, which focused the minds of detectives scrabbling around to catch the Clifton rapist. But there were other pressures on Avon and Somerset police. The force was juggling complex inquiries. Just down in Minehead in Somerset, detectives were building the case against the former leader of the Liberal Party, Jeremy Thorpe. He'd been charged with conspiracy to murder in August 1978 and faced trial the following year. It was a sensitive and politically precarious inquiry. And in Bristol, the city centre had become a target for the provisional IRA's bombing campaigns. On an evening in December 1978, they left a device at a department store in the city and Chris Gould was just nearby. One night I probably wasn't more than 400 metres to an explosion when um, mags went up at the top of Park Street um, during the middle of the night, just, just as the nightclubs were emptying up there. And I mean, you can still see today, you can still see the, the shrapnel and... Um, marks in the walls opposite where mags used to be. No one was seriously injured in that blast, and despite the potential deadliness of the bombs, it wasn't Irish Republicans, but the Clifton Rapist who seemed to strike fear in the city. Detectives were at a loss. You'll understand the policing toolkit was pretty basic in 1979. When an attack happened, they'd look for fingerprints, footprints, get a blood type from swabs, but they couldn't definitively catch a man from those. DNA science was more than half a decade away. No one had mobile phones, and cell site technology was the stuff of science fiction. Security cameras were few and far between. They did what they could. Big publicity campaigns. They followed thousands of leads door-to-door inquiries. They looked at lists of released sex attackers and murderers. 
They had analysed his attacks and realised that all of his victims had walked along White Ladies Road for at least some point before. Now, this is one of the main thoroughfares in the north of the city. It is now, as it was then, lined with high-end bars and nightclubs, lots of young people about. He didn't approach or assault the women on this main drag. It was too well lit, detectives thought. He waited until the women walked into the darkened side streets. With each new victim, police would get more details. He was tall, white, in his 30s. He had a really distinctive handlebar moustache. His accent was from somewhere up north, and a yellow Ford Capri had been spotted before at least two attacks. This was significant. It was a big job. It was a big case. It was something... Uh, that was unusual. You wanted you wanted to be part of it to actually um, help get this individual and, and put it behind bars. And there was a sense in the briefings, certainly, that there was a lot of pressure um, on, on us as a service to actually get this job done. Um, so yeah, I'm sure that the the senior officers would have would have been particularly pressurised at the time. One night, watching television, Chris Gould had a moment of inspiration. There had been um, a documentary which I'd seen um, that had been shown on British telly, which was to do with um, the American um, undercover system, just in one particular part of America. Uh, And some of the undercover work that they'd done, which was very close to an issue around agent provocateur um, in respect of... um, purporting to be a um you know a drunk or purporting to be a homeless person um putting yourself in the line of fire to be attacked or assaulted or um you know you know the victim of a crime and then you know bouncing up and arresting the person that's uh, effectively uh, stolen from you i happened to mention it to a to a guy um on my group at redland in bristol where i was working and I mentioned this to him, and I said, "Well, that's the sort of thing that they should do with this the this sex attacker." Word passed up the ranks. Commanders at Avon and Somerset would try anything, so they put the call out. They needed a team of young women to walk the streets as decoys. Around twelve came forward. There was Michelle Leonard, one of the eldest at twenty-three, forthright, no nonsense. Steph Bearden, only 18, tall and sporty, and Sally DeFazio, who'd gone to school with Chris, a keen athlete, perhaps the most reserved. And there were at least nine others. All the decoys I've spoken to said they volunteered out of a sense of duty and that there was something exciting about the prospect. If you want to hear from the women who were involved, I'll tell you how you can do that a little later. They have a remarkable story. But the focus of this episode is Chris Gould and his unique, almost unbelievable role in this groundbreaking operation. Because what he did and what happened to him almost defies belief. He had the initial idea from that documentary. Then he provided self-defence training for the decoys. Chief officers knew that if the Clifton rapist were to attack one of them, they'd be alone for at least a few seconds. They needed to buy the women time when they were struggling one-to-one with one of the country's most wanted men. The idea of the self-defence was because of the threat 
around the, the, the hands around the throat, which could in a split second actually uh, take somebody's life if, if the wrong thing was, was done. Um, what we needed to try and do, what I attempted to try and do, was to give them sufficient skill to be able to respond quick enough um, to uh, release the grip. Now, covert officers usually had a few years' experience under their belt, but these girls, and some were really not much older than girls, were the perfect fit to match the attackers' targets. They were putting themselves on the line. First of all, they were getting all sorts of, um, you know, on-street verbal abuse anyway. Then there was the constant fear of risk that anybody, any male that they were walking close to or was passing or was driving past them could have been not only the attacker, but one one of the attackers because there were, there were clearly others operating there as well. At the moment of an attack or just prior to attack, they're on their own. Um, so you've got to be pretty brave to put yourself in that position and go, yeah, I'm okay. I'm I'm happy to do this effectively for the, for the greater good. And um, you know, trust in the system, trust in the fact that you know I I will be strong enough to manage this if it happens. And secondly, that that my colleagues will be close enough, quick enough, brave enough, and effective enough to uh, deal with the attacker should it happen. So yeah, I mean. They really did put themselves out there, and it was unique. You know, it was it was a pretty unique operation at the time. Chris Gould was one of the observation officers, playing close covert operatives who lined the streets to watch the women and for the attacker. I was in the car at one stage, and I was also um, behind a bush on another occasion in somebody's garden. Um, it was cold. It was. Uh, there was a lot of waiting um, because we we were static observation points, so we weren't we weren't moving around. It was important that we weren't um, discovered either by other members of the public um, because that would just um, create havoc with calls coming in. Uniformed police officers having to attend, you know, talk to members of the public about strange people looking out of windows or, or whatever. They named the initiative after a mythical, 100-eyed, all-seeing monster. They called it Operation Argus. The initial nerves of the first few runs gave way to the cold reality of this thankless operation. There were long hours for the women walking the streets without success. Long hours for the observation officers freezing in the shadows. Long hours for the task force waiting in unmarked vans ready to pounce. Long hours for backup teams in police stations waiting for intelligence to come in. The days, or well, nights, were passing. There was no sign of the man from the photo fits, the man in the yellow Ford Capri. Operation Argus's commanders would only risk the safety of the female officers on the main streets, the well-lit roads. But all the attacks had happened in those darkened side streets. 
The commanders refused to allow the women to go there. So this is where Operation Argus takes a slightly freaky twist. No one these days can remember whose idea it was, who dreamt this up. But someone suggested, and this was signed off by the commanders, that a small team should be deployed. Not women, but police men dressed as women. It would be comical if it were not so serious. And Chris Gould, who was slim and young, was a perfect choice. Understandably, the, the senior officers were, were petrified about <clears throat> uh, putting the policewomen at risk um, in the way that, that could have potentially happened and um, the seriousness of that, which is understandable. I think they felt um, less worried about the, de- the, f- the male decoys, first of all, because I, d- I, I just don't think they thought that would work anyway. They asked for uh, volunteers for this, and of course, I was one of them. And I think that it was seen as uh, as quite bizarre you know it was it was an extraordinary thing to do and almost like it was a joke um that that we would be contemplating this when you put the clothes on and the makeup on and you know what what was that like looking in the mirror looking back at yourself it was pretty extraordinary uh and and it felt really strange and weird and uncomfortable, uh, it has to be said. Um, <clears throat> so it would take me at least two hours to get dressed, at least two hours with the, with the makeup. And I'm not exaggerating. It was, it was a big thing to do. Um, so <clears throat> you'd have not only the makeup phase, but you'd have the wig. Um, and and the clothing and getting that right and making sure that the attire was compatible with not only the weather but also with what you needed <clears throat> to establish or identify yourself as a female um, but but also compatible with the radio equipment. One of the things the women decoys noticed was that while they, the women, wore jeans or trousers and heavy coats and flat shoes, the men who dressed in drag wore skirts and heels. At least four men tried it, but only Chris and a colleague called Robbie Jones managed to stay the course. They certainly didn't last. I mean, it was it was a difficult thing to do, you know, as soon as you go out there dressed as a wo- dressed as a woman, um, and you're not walking properly and you look wrong, um, you get blown out straight away. And you know people will pick you and then you know shout at you and call you all sorts of of names. <clears throat> so they um, and that happened. That happened to um, a few of them for sure because I remember them talking about it and them saying, "I'm not doing this again." It was scary. It was scary at a number of different levels, really. It was scary. There was a vulnerability around um, your malehood actually dressing up as a woman, I think. It was scary because you didn't want to be um, uncovered um, and and made to look stupid, Um, not only in front of the public, 
um, who probably wouldn't have understood that you were a police officer anyway, but but you didn't want to feel that you'd let the team down either. Chris had a team of five observation officers attached to him, but he was walking six miles on a route. It was impossible for them to keep an eye on him all the time. There would be moments when he was on his own, alone, dressed as a woman in the side streets where a predator was known to attack. Then, one night, in the late hours in the shadowy side streets, Chris Gould Indrag found himself face to face with a man. Tall, big hair, handlebar moustache, Chris Gould was face to face with the Clifton rapist. He was sure of it. There was a, a guy on the opposite side of the road, walking in the opposite direction from me, who um, started whistling and shouting at me um, to, to get, get my attention, which, of course, he got my attention. And when I managed to clock this guy under the streetlight as he, as he got to a streetlight, he was a dead ringer for the photo fit. And I actually did a double take and thought, whoa, now we didn't, we didn't have a script for this. So we didn't know, um, you know, what do we what do we do here? So all I did is I just held my gaze at him. Then he stopped and he turned and he looked at me and then he ran towards me. Before I knew it, I was attacked. I, he jumped on me from behind and he threw me into, um, and I, I was ready for this, mine. And he threw me into um, a shop doorway. I let all this happen um, and he started hitting me, like belting me with his hands, punching me. He started talking to me and he, he was saying something to the effect of, you come, you come back to my place. I make love to you, and um, I, you know, I give you, I give you five, five pounds, and all this. And his accent clearly was not the accent that I was anticipating or expecting for our attacker. Um, so this was another attacker who had just chosen to attack a female. I managed to put my hands up around his um, his collar. And I literally just turned him into the doorway, so reversed the position. Um, and then he was hang, you know, hanging onto me, still hitting me. Chris Gould needed backup quickly. He knew he had a colleague in a car nearby, Dave Bryant, but he couldn't see him. No one else on the street at all. No other members of the public. No one would have seen this. No one would have heard it. Dave saw me leaning out of the, the, the door, so he started running. This guy realized that um, I had seen, must have seen somebody, and went, went to go. So I just, boom, chinned him. And he went down, down the door, absolutely startled, with his eyes wide open as he slid down the door onto the floor. And at that very moment, um, Dave Bryant turned turned up, and he 
said to me, are you all right, my love? Is this man bothering you? He said, I'm a police officer. And he produced his warrant card. And he said, don't you worry about it. He said, I'll be dealing with this this man. So we, we never blew the cover because we'd never rehearsed anything like this. And this all just happened like naturally, um, in a sense. It, it, it sort of, it, it just emerged this this recipe for how we would how would we deal with it it was a bizarre um ordeal and each time it made me appreciate how difficult it is for women actually being on the streets um just trying to have a life trying to be normal. As a guy um, walking around those streets, I wouldn't have flinched once. I wouldn't have worried about my own safety at any time. But as a, as a woman, it was a, it's a totally different experience. And I, I have had an appreciation for that ever since. That man was arrested, but he wasn't the man. The Clifton rapist hadn't struck again. But neither had he been caught. So as protesters continued to demonstrate, as female decoys walked the main well-lit streets, Chris Gould continued in the shadows, and soon he found himself under attack again. White transit van pulled up, and a, a black guy jumped out of the driver's seat and came around the van as I started to walk past the van and then he called me from the front of the van. So I turned um, to look at him and he was asking me the time and the directions and all this stuff. But what was actually happening as I was engaging in this dialogue was that the back doors of the van were opening and out jumped three or four others out of the back and attack me. And they, they're they trying to um, ab- effectively abduct me and get me into the transit van. Somehow my my wig and everything is, is remaining intact. All this is happening in a split second and I'm thinking, right, what, what am I gonna do here? Now at this stage, I was not under observation. I knew that nobody could see me. Um, so, I had I had to fight. I basically fought three to four blokes at the same time. I had a bit of an upper hand. First, of, first of all, because they were shocked that I was actually responding in the way that I was. Then I think they got angry, and uh, then it got a bit more serious. Chris Gould was alone, in drag, looking for a sex attacker, being beaten up by a gang of abductors who had no idea who they had picked on. But Chris Gould could only defend himself for so long. By chance, and it was just chance, a police traffic patrol car was parked a couple of hundred yards away. The driver and officer in the passenger seat were writing up notes as their comrade was being assaulted by this gang just down the road. As he looked out from his pocketbook and just glanced down the side of the road and saw this melee, shoved his mate and they drove and um, they called for assistance. And, you know, all these guys were arrested. These guys were on the prowl looking for um, clearly a female to abduct. 
um, and you know do whatever with that night and had that had that not have been me on that occasion um, right place at the right time who knows what else we would have had there Chris and the traffic officers arrested the abductors and Chris had the most incredible arrest record dressed as a woman in total he would detain 36 men in the few weeks he went undercover Another time, he spotted a couple of car thieves who didn't seem threatened at all by this small woman in heels. Chris Gould called the task force who arrived and the car thieves split up. There was only one thing for it. And the second guy, he ran down the back streets there. So I ran after him, like literally just ran after him. And we went most of the way down that road in the middle of the street um, with him sort of looking behind, not quite being able to comprehend that this woman that just passed him is suddenly chasing him. And I ended up rugby tackling him, taking him down and, um, and basically detaining him. And then eventually he was nicked as well. I didn't say anything to him on, on this occasion because uh, I, I was always trying to preserve my identity. And I, we didn't want the story of male cops dressed up in female to get out. The story of male officers dressed as women was causing tension in Chris's home life. What did your wife say to that? What did she, What were your wife's thoughts? She didn't like it. <clears throat> she didn't like it. It was too creepy. It was just too, it was just too creepy for her. We'd get ready upstairs, but I'd say goodbye before I went upstairs to get changed because she didn't like to see me dressed up. Then I would walk out it'd be pitch black because it was winter so it'd be pitch black and i'd walk out to go and get in the car to drive to south mead police station and um that got a little bit awkward because i was coming out of my house and occasionally some of my neighbors who, who most of whom were police officers or retired police officers some of them just kept coming home or popping in and i'd have comments hello love all right you know and all this sort of stuff and and they would have no idea it was me when chris gould arrived at the police station he would study the overnight briefings this led directly to one of his most important arrests one evening chris read that a woman had been raped by a man who'd approached her in a car this wasn't the clifton rapist it was someone else she'd been able to describe what the inside of the vehicle looked like after seeing this Chris Gould went out for his night as a decoy. I was walking down Blackboy Hill <clears throat> and uh, a mark for Cortina pulled up alongside me and <clears throat> the driver had got the window, the passenger window down um, and started chatting me up um, and wanted to give me a lift and and wanted to know where I was going and all that sort of stuff. When I looked inside the vehicle, um, I effectively was reliving the statement that I'd just read at the briefing in terms of the description that the victim had given from inside the vehicle when she was uh, raped. That included things like uh, these box dice fluffy box dice things and a couple of other things that were on the dashboard. I was pretty, pretty damn sure this was, this was a vehicle. So 
the upshot of that was we were able to get the registration number. He was arrested and he was um, charged with that offence. Operation Argus was now in its third month. There had been lots of arrests, but none was the Clifton Rapist. The operation with female teams of decoy officers, male teams of decoy officers, observation units, task forces and backup in police stations was just too expensive to continue. Operation Argus was given one final night, March the 22nd, 1979. It was Michelle Leonard's turn to walk. She was the eldest of the women decoys, 23, straight talking, still on probation. Like Chris, she was seen as a go-getter. They were good friends. She'd done a few decoy runs over the weeks, all without incident. That was about to change. On this night, on this final night, Michelle was dropped off near White Ladies Road and she turned onto the main street. Immediately, a yellow Ford Capri started following her, slowing behind her. They caught a glimpse of the driver. He was an exact match for those photofit images. Watch teams called in his license plate and intelligence units in the office checked the new police national computer. They found out who the vehicle belonged to. Michelle had a message in her earpiece. You've got a killer on your track. The communication was brief. This man had been imprisoned for rape and murder and had been freed on life license. And now he was walking just a few feet behind Michelle. Michelle, young, inexperienced, but brave Michelle, was told the choice was hers. Either option was terrifying. Should she stay on the main well-lit roads where he would never attack, but he could go on to assault another woman later, a woman without police backup? Or should she go where the male decoys like Chris had been parading into the darkened side streets and put her own life in danger to allow a killer to attack her? Michelle reached a junction. She weighed her options. What should she do? Main road or side streets. And she turned down the darkened road. Michelle knew she had to allow this killer to touch her, otherwise there would be no grounds for his arrest. She had to be assaulted by him. She could hear his feet behind her. Then they fell silent. In the dark, she saw a street lamp ahead. Michelle knew she just had to get under that so the observation teams could see her. She walked from the dark into the light. She turned and the Clifton Rapist was on her shoulder. They looked at each other, killer and rookie cop. Then he said, don't scream or I'll kill you. He grabbed her by the throat, punched her and Michelle screamed. The attacker fled and was rugby tackled by an observation officer, Andy Kerslake. He arrested him. The Clifton rapist had been caught at last. That night, Chris Gould, the man who'd had the idea for the operation, the man who had trained the women, who had been an observation man and then had spent weeks operating as a decoy in drag, was on a night off. But he was delighted with the capture of the Clifton Rapist. 
remember it being um, on a high because of the of what had happened the night before and the fact that we'd got this guy. And I think because of the identity of who it was and the intelligence around him being on life license and the MO from, you know, his historical offences, um, you know, this, this could only be the man that we were after. The man was called Ronald Evans. Detectives quickly learnt about his past, that in 1963 he'd raped and murdered a 21-year-old shop worker called Kathleen Heathcote. That was up in Mansfield in Nottinghamshire. He was sentenced to life in prison but served just over 10 years. He was released, moved to Bristol, and divided his time between being a husband, an electrician, and being the Clifton Rapist. Police knew Evans was responsible for seven attacks, but he pleaded guilty to only five. He was sent back to prison. One of the sexual assault counts and the most serious charge, the rape, were dropped until cold case officers used new DNA techniques to rebuild those cases 25 years later in 2004, when those victims finally saw justice. Chris Gould was awarded a Chief Constable's Medal, along with all of the decoys. Michelle was awarded a Queen's Police Medal for bravery. Michelle was an extraordinarily brave person, as were the other uh, policewomen that put themselves out there. It was, it's just extraordinarily brave to have done that. And, and yes, I think there is, when you're younger, there's that sense of um, being untouchable or you know, being able to cope with anything that's thrown at you. Uh, but still... You know, it's real. When you're, when you're out there walking it, doing it. Evans has a dreadful legacy. He murdered the young shop worker Kathleen Heathcote, a killing which has cast a dark shadow over her family. And the seven women he attacked never forgot what he did to them. One of the victims gave a statement in 2004, saying that ever since her assault in 1978, she would only walk in the middle of the road at night in case someone would jump out at her. Another only wore flat shoes so she could run if needed. These were women who were attacked a quarter of a century earlier and they were on red alert every day. Evans became Britain's longest serving prisoner, spending well over half a century behind bars. He was released from prison in 2018. In August 2022, I released a documentary about this decoy operation. Two days later, police in London arrested Evans again on suspicion of sexually assaulting two vulnerable women between 2020 and 2022. He was in his 80s at the time of the last allegation. He denied it at a trial, but today a jury convicted him of one of these offences. He was acquitted of the other two. He has returned to jail once more and will be sentenced later this week. Chris Gould had no contact with the Clifton Rapists' victims, but he has dealt with many other survivors of sex attacks and understands how profound the consequences remain when the physical wounds have healed. I am more than conscious as to the impact on their lives and have watched, in some cases, watched how the, that impact has lasted long term. After working on Operation Argus, Chris Gould spent his entire policing career at Avon and Somerset. He rose quickly through the ranks and retired as a detective chief superintendent in 2007. Before he retired, Chris set up a child protection charity and he works still in that sector, 
based in Australia but working globally. These days, the warm climes of Australia are a far cry from those freezing nights in Bristol in the winter of 1979, when he went out on a career-defining operation. A covert case which was in turns daring, dangerous, desperate and innovative. It was held up nationally as an example of what could be achieved by a team of undercover officers. While Chris Gould may not himself have caught the Clifton Rapist, he arrested more than 30 men. And it was he who had that initial flash of inspiration to use decoys. He delivered the training programme, and then of course he went out, firstly as an observation man, and then dressed as a woman, giving Operation Argus the devil-may-care zeal it needed to succeed. I remember one of my bosses, I think who was the chief inspector at the time, saying to me, this is a career-defining moment. You know, you, you'll, you'll never not be talking about this case. It, it, will, it will always be with you. And it's because it was such an extraordinary uh, case. N- not only the decoy operation for the females, but the male decoy work was, was pretty extraordinary. And then the very fact that he was caught, the fact that he was a serial offender was an extraordinary thing. And he, he said to me, you know, you won't ever be able to walk away from this. Um, it, it, people will always be linking you to it. And of course, that's exactly right. That's exactly what has happened. While Chris has always been linked with this case, he has never spoken in this depth to a broadcaster before. If you want to see more about this case, you can watch the documentary I made focusing on the female decoys, Michelle, Steph and Sally. There's a link in the show notes, or you can go online, search for me, Roberts Murphy and Decoy. Please do subscribe, rate and review this podcast. We are completely independent and ad-free and your support really does help. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Roberts Murphy.